This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. And as you probably know by now, billionaire Elon Musk has bought the social media platform Twitter. And there's a lot of concern right now about what looks like a much more laissez-faire approach to offensive content being taken. A number of previously banned users have been allowed back on board, among them the former US President Donald Trump. It's hardly surprising given that Elon Musk has proclaimed himself a free speech absolutist and he's referred to Twitter as the digital town square, whose community members should be allowed to express themselves without fear of policing or censorship. So I've been following all of this and all the while I've been bothered by what an odd notion it is that someone should own the town square. Surely the whole point of the town square is that it's public space, and the idea that some rich guy should be able to have that space as his personal estate seems somehow wrong, or at least anomalous. Well, it turns out that I'm not the only person thinking this. I came across a Twitter thread recently, written by someone who I consider to be one of the town square's finest citizens. Her name is Helen DeCruz. She's a professor of philosophy at St. Louis University in Missouri, and that Twitter thread, which I'll put a link to on our website, is a wonderful meditation on social media and property ownership and, stay with me here, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Helen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, I should mention here at the outset for our listeners that as this conversation is being recorded, Twitter is alive and kicking, but there's been a lot of speculation as to whether or how soon Elon Musk is likely to just fly the whole thing into the side of the mountain. So, dear listeners, if by the time you hear this interview, Twitter has crashed and burned, then stay with us because our conversation is still highly pertinent to a whole range of other concerns that have to do with property and ownership. So, Helen, we spoke about social media on this program a couple of years ago, and at the time, you were having a very uh, on-again, off-again relationship with Facebook. In fact, I think you'd quit Facebook. You have been active on Twitter, though, since then. Why the one platform and not the other? Why have you stayed with Twitter? So, I feel that different platforms have different affordances, and by that, I mean that they allow us to engage in different ways. So, for example, Instagram is great if you want to share pictures or music, uh, but it's not really that good for discussion. And Facebook is better for discussion. It's really good for groups and such. But it felt to me like it really was encouraging a kind of in-groupism. So you have naturally, because you write only for your friends, for your audience, you start getting enormous echo chamber effects, which became really pertinent with uh, several elections where, you know, ads uh, were coming onto people's feeds that uh, sort of further amplified bad in-group dynamics. And I didn't enjoy uh, the kind of in-groupism that it seemed to to give, whereas it seemed to me like Twitter, of course, like all media and even Twitter's media, as has been found by their own research in 2021, actually amplifies right-wing conservative content. So that's just, you know, all the big media everywhere uh, favor that sort of content. And Twitter is no exception. But that being said, it felt to me like it really did encourage a kind of epistemic diversity, by which I mean diversity of opinions. You could also always see what other people were thinking. And it gave you a good idea, like, for example, you know, if prior to, say, the Brexit referendum, I was living in the UK, and if I had to believe my Facebook feed, it was all about Remain. Like, everybody was going to vote Remain. It was going to be a stunning victory for Remain. And then 
what happened was, you know, leave one. And one of the reasons I couldn't foresee that was I was in a bubble. And I thought, I, I don't want to be in a, I want to at the very least know what's going on. But you have to, of course, sort of try to balance knowing what's going on with, uh, you know, the sorts of like, you shouldn't amplify, say, anti-Semitic speech or anti-vax sentiment. So there's a careful balance to be drawn. It felt to me that Twitter had better balance overall for some of the things I liked. Uh, But now I already feel that the platform feels a bit degraded because several people who gave really interesting remarks have left. Yeah, I've certainly started seeing a lot of really nasty, extreme right-wing content on Twitter that, that I wasn't seeing a month ago. You know, and, and I do follow a few of those kinds of accounts on Twitter, just in, in the name of keeping tabs on what's being talked about in that world. But there's definitely been an increase in that sort of content on my timeline. And it, it's making me wonder if I'll stick around. Are you planning on staying? I don't know. Like It seems to me like the alternatives aren't really giving the same sorts of affordances So I don't know, like it's possible. I could actually afford not to be on any social media. So some people, they can't afford not to be on social media because they have to like self-advertise like writers and, you know, but if you're an academic with a steady job, I mean, I know many who are just not on any social media, um, so I could do it. But at the same time, I like, you know, the engagement. So I don't know. I'll, I'll just wait and see. It's a difficult time. Do you find Twitter philosophically interesting or valuable, by which I mean, you know, philosophically interesting in and of itself, but also useful as a platform for doing philosophy, engaging in philosophy? I find Twitter really, really useful for philosophical engagement. Something like just throw an idea out there and then people say, hey, here's this really cool paper that has to do with this idea. And then you think, wow, I didn't know about this. And in fact, the nice thing, and that's why I don't think Mastodon is going to be a good replacement for me, is that I also have a lot of archaeologists, anthropologists, social scientists, and they will say things like, oh, here's a cool anthropology paper. And it's really well known in anthropology, but I'm not an anthropologist. So I learn across disciplinary boundaries that I think is really the strength of it. And I don't know anything like Facebook, for example, didn't give me that kind of engagement because it's a lower cost thing to follow somebody on Twitter. So you have more diversity. Well, let's get into the substance of this conversation, I guess, which is philosophy of of ownership, of property. And, and of course, what we're seeing with Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter is a very good example of the modern concept of ownership. Can you outline that concept for us? What does it mean to own something from a, a contemporary Western perspective? One thing to realize about ownership is that there are many, many different ways to own something. Uh, If you look at it cross-culturally, there's such a huge variation in ownership. So, for example, one of the things that is specific about Western ownership is that you own something that usually, it's not always the case, but usually you own it outright, which means like I just bought a nice loot I love playing that instrument, but if I wanted to bang it to the floor and break it, I could totally do that. So there are certain limitations like pets, for example. We can't abuse our pets, fortunately. Uh, But in general, you can do with things that you own as you see fit. And it is very strange to have this concept cross-culturally is incredibly rare. Um, There are other features such as that what something is worth is how much you can exchange it for. 
So there is a kind of collapse between owning something and then the exchange value of the thing. Uh, that is something that actually only emerged in the 19th century, whereas owning something outright was a sort of gradual evolution in the West from the Middle Ages up until the present time. You've written that this modern Western European concept of property begins around the time of the 12th century. So prior to that, how was property ownership thought of? So prior to that, uh, when you think about land, the land was not held as estates. Rather, the land, so you had the overlord, and the overlord had the land and gave that land in loan to the tenant. So the tenant was the owner. So you had the king or whatever, and then you had individual knights and other nobles, and they had this land, but the land was not truly theirs. Like they couldn't do with it as they saw fit. They had to uh, manage it in a certain way. Uh, they had to, you know, let the peasants live on the land, etc. They had certain obligations towards the overlord, and they had certain obligations uh, towards the people who lived on the land, for example, protection. But then gradually, there was a sort of custom where the land would go to the oldest son. Now, that was just like a custom. And sometimes people would pass over the oldest son for whatever reason. Uh, but then, you know, the oldest son wasn't always happy with that if he was passed over. And so there was a strong expectation that began that, yes, it had to go and be inherited in that way. So that sort of loosened the bond between the overlord and you know that the feudal system basically collapsed after a while and was replaced by, you know, the modern capitalist system. And that was part of it. Part of it was that this bond between overlord and the tenants of a, of a domain uh, became loosened. So this loosening of the moral bond between the owner of a property and the people whose lives and livelihoods might be bound up with that property, that fraying of that bond takes a big philosophical step forward in the work of John Locke in the 17th century. Can you take us through that? How does Locke sort of reshape the idea of property and, and private ownership? So for Locke, and this is important to note, property has to do with self-preservation. If you have your property, it is something that helps you to survive and to thrive. And he thought that actually, if people owned things, if land was owned by people, that this would somehow enrich everybody. Uh, and that land that wasn't owned, you saw wild land, was just useless. So um, he thought that basically what you do is you mix your labor with the raw materials. Like we don't create things out of nothing, right? We're not gods or anything. So we create things based by mixing our labor with the materials that we find around us. And that creates the property. So if you mix your labor with something, then it becomes yours. Like, for example, you find a tree trunk and you 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 shape it into a boat. Uh, all of a sudden, that useless tree trunk becomes a useful boat. And you have put your labor into it and you can use the boat for, you know, for your self-preservation, for example, for fishing. Another way that Locke thought that we could have property is just by taking it. So if you just come to an undiscovered land that isn't really undiscovered, uh, then you could just take a piece of land 
but then, of course, you have the problem about what if you are somebody who comes very late and everybody else has taken all the land? That doesn't seem right because all of a sudden you have to become a land laborer, whereas before you could have become an owner. So the way that Locke deals with that is to say that you can only take to the extent that there is still enough for others to take. But the bottom line is that land that is not taken, that is used as common ownership, is useless in a sense and doesn't make people as well off as people who own land privately. And that's why he thought it was actually fine that uh, Native American land was taken. He thought that it was totally fine to take the land of Native Americans. And in fact, he said that they were just poorer than even a land laborer who didn't own anything because everything was just held commonly. So in his view, uh, it's a good thing to have property. Property is going to make us all richer. Property helps us to preserve ourselves. It's important for our liberty. It's important for society gives us the comforts of society. So a very positive view of property. Right. So his notion of ownership of land and territory then, as you say, depends very much on the mixing of one's labour with that land or territory. So when it came to the taking of land from Native Americans by European settlers, was there no concept there that Native Americans had mixed their labour with the land? Because it was specifically common land, it wasn't seen that way. So it was conceived as as commons. The concept of commons was not unknown to him or to other early modern authors. But the idea was like, it's nobody's land and that's bad. And we can, you know, civilize this place by making it somebody's land. But Locke also believed, didn't he, that private ownership, and it's back to this notion of self-protection, can protect you from abuses of authority on the part of government. How was that supposed to work? So that is just, uh, it gives you a degree of self-sufficiency. So you, uh, you're you in a sense protected by, you know, by by your estate. And, and we still have this notion actually today, like, for example, why is home ownership good? Well, because people, you know, they have their own houses and they're protected from, say, you know, landlords, the government. I mean, I think that this idea is very well ingrained with uh my home is my castle, as people said in the UK, at least up until some point. And property undergoes another important conceptual shift in the 18th and 19th centuries with industrialization. We've already touched on that. What what happens there? So with industrialization, you increasingly have the idea so that property is something that just is something that you can exchange and sell and buy. So if Twitter can be bought for $44 billion, that's his exchange value, that's his worth. Like maybe now people wouldn't want to buy, I suppose it has already lost quite a lot of value. So its exchange value is less, so its value is less. So there's this kind of collapse, and I think it's Hannah Arendt who talked about that, between the exchange value of something and what it is worth, whereas these used to be distinct things. And, you know, sometimes they still are distinct things. Like, for example, you could have like a really useful, a bowl that you would only be able to sell for like a few a few dollars but to you is very precious because it has it has a kind of special value to you but still this 18th 19th century idea of exchange value became uh, very important and also the idea about like okay uh, what sort of obligations do we have uh, with things that we buy well basically you can do whatever you want with it so there's like the kind of moral thing that surrounds it is if you can buy it you can have it. So that's basically a big change 
that we still see today. That's why uh, Elon Musk can do whatever he wants with Twitter. He could have bought it and just basically fired everybody and just closed it down. And there's no way that we can say anything about that because after all, it is his. He has no obligations to the users whatsoever, but it is a fairly recent concept that there are no obligations whatsoever and that you're just this atomistic agent who's basically negotiating with others about like, what am I going to willing to to uh, buy this for and how much do I sell it for? And that's it. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge and I'm talking this week with Helen de Cruz from St. Louis University about property and ownership and whether or not owning something should carry a moral obligation to look after that thing, whether it happens to be a house or a piece of land or perhaps a social media company. Well, let's bring in Jane Austen at this point and her wonderful novel Pride and Prejudice. The setup of that plot has to do with property, particularly the notion of entailment. Can you tell me about entailment and, and what it means for Jane Austen's heroine, Elizabeth Bennet, and, and her sisters? As many people who have seen the many adaptations of Pride and Prejudice or maybe have read Pride and Prejudice, the central drama involves the entailment of the estate of Longbourn. So you have basically um, the father, Mr. Bennett, and he didn't produce an heir. And this is important. Longbourn is entailed, which means that it will go to the next male heir in line. Now, since he didn't produce an heir, the next male heir is Mr. Collins, who is not even a very close relation, must be some cousin or something. So the problem is the moment that Mr. Bennett dies, his wife and his five unmarried daughters will end up basically poor uh, at the mercy of Mr. Collins, who at that point in the beginning of the novel has never met them. Uh, so it's a bad situation. But one thing to realize is entailments were this kind of situation where you had the estate that was protected from the person who was in it. So an entailment was created. In the entailment, it was said, look, you can't just sell it. You can't just mortgage it. You can't just go gambling one night with your friends and then the next morning realize I gambled my estate away. So it was actually to protect the estate from the person who lived in it. And at some point, uh, the entailment ends. So in the 18th, 19th century, uh, the entailments were created to protect the estate, also the people who lived on the estate. But uh, at that point, entailments could only go one generation of the, the generation that was born plus one. So that meant you could make an entailment for your son who was born. Your grandson wasn't born yet, but you could specify in the entailment. It then goes one generation further. But not everything was entailed. So, for example, you have the estate on which Lady Catherine de Bourgh lives, and that one is not entailed. So her daughter can, in fact, inherit because there's no entailment. Uh, and in fact, Catherine de Bourgh says this at some point to Elizabeth, like, ah, what a pity that you're going to be turned into the streets, whereas my daughter isn't. So you have this situation whereby uh, the entailment was there to create a kind of continuity, but also because the idea of outright ownership became so important, entailments were curtailed in time so that you couldn't just have in perpetuity uh, something always going to the next generation. And so can we see then entailment as being 
uh, sort of harking back to the older pre-modern notion of property where, where there's, the owner is more like a steward? There are elements of stewardship in it. At the same time, though, you have the inheritance that is specified, and that's already a change. So that's already post-1100s. So it's a kind of in-betweenish. So it has certain modern elements in that normally the eldest son was expected to inherit. But at the same time, it's then old-fashioned because we then go further to where you no longer have this chain of inheritance. So it's a kind of in-between state, I think, between medieval and you know contemporary industrial notions of property ownership. And the way that Pride and Prejudice is, is set up seems to present entailment as an injustice in that it potentially spells disaster for, for Elizabeth Bennet and her sisters. Should we take from this then that, that Jane Austen is implicitly advocating for a more modern notion of property, or at least that's what we can take from the, the moral structure of the story? I think that you can clearly make the case that she thinks that the entailment is sexist because that's the whole problem. I mean, there's five girls there. Each of them, you know, would be great. Maybe not Lydia, but any of them would be great inheritors of this estate, uh, but they don't get to because, you know, so so it's an injustice. Um, you have uh, Mrs. Bennett who says it rather explicitly. She says it several times like, oh no, the estate is a tail the way for my poor daughters. So it's difficult to see what she thinks about, but it has to be said that in many, many respects, Jane Austen likes more modern concepts. So for example, there is an older concept of sort of marrying for convenience, but then you have the more modern concept of romantic love. And in fact, when Elizabeth Bennet refuses to marry Mr. Collins, even though it would solve everybody's problems. This, like the weight of that, the fact that she does it is really, really, it's it's a grave thing. And the fact that it does seem that Jane Austen condones this does seem to suggest that she thinks that at least in this case, it would have been better if Mr. Bennet had owned the estate outright and could have just, you know, uh, let any of his daughters inherited. So as we move into the 20th century, as we've already talked about this, the, the focus on use sort of fades into the background and the value of property comes to be seen as exchange value, which makes property something transactional and, and even further removed from the moral domain. And you note that that has a profound impact on human relationships. How is that the case? I think it's very pervasive in the way that we think about how we manage people around us, our environment, everything, right? So it basically loosens, it frees people with extreme wealth from any obligations. So you have this noblesse oblige, which I know it didn't mean much, okay? I'm not sort of romantic of the pre-modern era. But the idea was still that, well, the only justification for nobility is that you have obligations. You have obligations, like, for example, you can't just turn the farmers on your land out from one day to the next. In fact, a lot of the money that went into such an estate in Jane Austen's time went to people's retirements and, you know, disability benefits, etc. But as industrialists got more and more the idea of like, you know, I own it outright, and if I can buy it, I shall buy it. I have no obligations beyond just paying and, you know, any contractual things that are in the contract. It sort of strips people of any sort of moral responsibility. And 
a lot of ills that we see with extreme wealth concentration come from that fact, namely that people with wealth, even with moderate wealth, don't feel like that comes with any obligations anymore. And it creates a huge imbalance that I think just exemplifies a lot of ills in our society. And you mentioned there that it has a bearing on environmental concerns as well. If something is only worth what it can be exchanged into, then of course you have beautiful, pristine land, but also how great is it to put an oil pipe there and how great is it to dig for coal there and how great is it, you know, so there is a lot of value there, but the value cannot really be expressed as exchange value. Now, people sometimes try this. So people of the climate movement, they'll say like the losses are in the billions and, you know, a pristine environment in terms of health benefits gives us so many million, but it's not really the point. So the point is, I don't think that we should actually try to put everything in terms of exchange value. Uh, In fact, I saw recently a history that showed that actually the idea of putting things like human health and even human lives in terms of money was something that Democrats did in the United States in the later 20th century. They started with that. And then you had Reagan who took over and they just sort of, they took that over. And now it seems like we can't talk about anything anymore unless we sort of put it into dollars. But why should we? So, so the problem is you you have this this thing, and it comes goes back to lock. Like if you think of the land as useless if it's not being exchanged, if it doesn't generate wealth, even though it generates lots of other things, health, biodiversity, you know, just animal lives that thrive. Uh, there's it's just very difficult to make the case that we should protect it. Well, to bring it back then to where we started with Twitter, the recent spate of sackings at Twitter where thousands of employees have lost their jobs, this brings home this idea that there's something wrong with the notion of ownership that lets the owner of a company just pull the rug out from under people's livelihoods. But as a Twitter user, do you feel that Elon Musk has some sort of moral obligation to you or or, or that he should have? I don't know. Like, I don't know if he does because you know, in terms of the concept of ownership, he does not. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, he can sack everybody. He can turn it into a right wing. You know, like, obviously, I think that the state of affairs is very bad. But in part, it has to do with how we conceive of property. It's almost like we should conceive of property in a different way. Like, it's not a necessity that this is our concept of property. Uh, but the way to change it would not be obvious. So you'd have to, like look at law and because law is the way in which certain of our philosophical assumptions get sort of enforceable, right? Um, So we'd have to look at that and try to rethink it because I think in some sense, wealthy enterprising people do use something of the moral dimension, but in a kind of have their cake and eat it way. For example, they say, yeah, you know, uh, government should support us and put investment into us and not make us pay taxes because we generate jobs. So it seems it's not that they say, yeah, you should do this because we are supposed to be wealthy. Uh, they, they, they do seem implicitly to say that they do some good or they try to make us believe that they do, but then they don't because, you know, they can do whatever they want. So I think as it stands with the concept of property as we have it, they don't 
have these obligations as such. So it's up to us democratically, you know, structurally to try to change that. Well, there's obviously more to talk about here and maybe we'll um, get you back onto the program to talk about it at some point in the not too distant future. Maybe we'll we'll talk about it while standing on the smoking ruins of Twitter. <laughs> we'll see. But um, for now, I'll just say uh, Helen Cruz, uh, Professor of Philosophy at St. Louis University. It's been wonderful to talk. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you very much, David. And you can find Helen de Cruz on Twitter for the time being at Helen Reflects. She has an excellent Twitter account and also she's got a great website. You'll find a link on our website. That's the Philosopher's Zone and we're also accessible via the ABC Listen app. And I'm David Rutledge on Twitter at David P Zone. I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. <laughs>